This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey everybody, this is Matt Davis. In this episode of Brain Matters, I had a nice chat with Dr. Andreas Tolias, an associate professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Tolias hopes to discover the canonical algorithms implemented in specific parts of the brain. Especially relevant is how the brain combines incoming sensory information from the external world and internally generated information such as attention and expectation. In psychology, this process is described as top-down and bottom-up information processing. We also touch on the intriguing notion that experimental noise from neural recordings may reflect important information from internal brain states. These states may reflect top-down information processing. To answer these questions, neuroscientists are developing many new ways to record the activity of large cell populations. Anyways, perk up those cochlea and enjoy my interview with Dr. Andreas Tolias. So I'd like to start at the beginning, sort of where did your journey as a scientist start? Uh, were you born in the U.S.? or No, I was born in Cyprus, Okay. you know, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And I guess I went to study as an undergraduate in England, in Cambridge University. Yeah. And that's, and I was interested in physics and math, but I ended up doing a lot of neurophysiology and interacting with a lot of good people there. And that's why I got interested into the brain. Were your uh, parents academics or scientists? No, they were not scientists at all. Yeah. No, I was the first one in my family to go and study science. Mm-hmm. So nobody was a scientist. Yeah. What was what did you first uh, sort of study in undergrad in terms of? I studied the, the my degree officially was in natural sciences. Yeah. Which was like uh, more broader, like with an emphasis in biological sciences, but also a lot of neurophysiology and yeah, yeah, stuff like that. In the next stage of your career, what topics? Yeah, so then I moved uh, to the U.S. and I did my Ph.D. at MIT. And there I did, you know, I did, because I knew a lot of the neuroscience already, I took some neuroscience, but also took courses in math and physics and stuff like that. Yeah. And some machine learning stuff. Basically, you know, I, uh, you know, I took courses in, like, whatever I felt like it was going to be useful Mm-hmm. For neuroscience, yeah, you know, but uh, you know, it was uh, broadly speaking related to systems and computational neuroscience. In your graduate work, what uh, what was your topic? Of yeah, so I, during my graduate work, I studied the so I studied the visual area, but I studied from the motor point of view. So I studied the influence of eye movements in the organization of receptive fields and uh, that was very interesting and enjoyable and I've learned a lot of things but also it was kind of an interesting idea that you know sensory and motor are not as uh, split as we tend to think they are. In what sense do you mean? Well for example I studied the you know area before which is supposed to be a visual area during but during eye movements there is these neurons their receptive fields are modulated in a very dynamic way mm-hmm that it probably reflects feedback and motor reference copies. Mm-hmm. So the motor system and the visual system are not as segregated as it were a little bit in the cortex from V1. 
And uh, did you do similar work in your postdoc? Or? No, in my postdoc, I, I focused, um, it was similar in the sense that I continued to study the dynamic properties of neurons and how they change very fast under natural viewing conditions. So I think one of the things that I guess was a theme for my graduate work and postdoc was under dynamic conditions that are more related to naturally how the visual system works. How do the properties look like? And I found that they look very different than if you study them in a classical way. Um, for one thing, what was thought as purely sensory areas were very strongly modulated by motor intentions. And on the other hand, if you looked at neurons that were not supposed to be encoding some features, let's say motion, they were not involved in motion computation. If you looked at the matter dynamic conditions, which is more okay, natural, like where things are constantly moving in the visual scene, then they became tuned to motion. So that was one theme. The other theme I was interested to sort of develop techniques to study more populations of neurons and ensembles of neurons and how they're organized. So I did a lot of like development of these tools when I was a postdoc and also did some fMRI work to study more broad dynamics. Could you sort of unpack um, what you mean by these dynamic properties and and uh, uh, dynamic neuron, neurons? Yeah, what so for, for example, so if you open your eyes, right, and you look at the world, you don't think about it, right? And more than 100 years ago, Helmholtz called this unconscious inference. It's like you automatically see the world, right? But actually, from a computational point of view, if you had to, let's say, build a robot to do this, it's a very difficult problem. It's just that we have evolved to be so good at it. We're like visual geniuses, right? So it may be hard for us to, let's say, play chess, but it's much easier to do vision, although we can build a robot that plays chess better than most humans in the world, but we cannot build a robot that does even simple visual tasks that a cat can do. So why is that? Well, that's because it's a very difficult problem, but we've developed neural architecture to do it very well. So what I mean by dynamic is that, you know, that the cortex may have evolved mechanisms to process this, to, to basically adapt to the statistics of the world that are sort of related to the dynamical properties of these neurons. And if we want to understand how the visual system computes information, we have to take the dynamics into account, you know, and, and link this to behavior, right? And I think this is a very difficult problem, but if we were to understand that, then we'll get closer to understanding visual intelligence and intelligence in general, because this has to do with the way, you know, our visual system has kind of, it's an intelligent system in kind of interpreting sensory information but in fact, these principles can be applied to any problem, even, let's say, the stock market, because you have some data, you want to predict the stock market, where a visual system is doing something analogous, but gets data from the visual world and then says this is a microphone. That thing is not that easy to do. So that's kind of what we're trying to understand in a nutshell. Can you uh, sort of get into how you're answering those questions? What sort of techniques yeah, you're so able to apply? So one of the things that we believe, you know, we know that the cortex is doing this, right? We know both in humans and in other species that 
especially in mammals, like, you know, the cortex is the one that does vision primarily. And also cognition in general, like when we make decisions, when we, whatever we do basically that is kind of what we perceive as cognitive or perceptual or complex motor movements, like you, it involves the cortex and other structures, but the cortex is... So, but this is a very complex thing, is 100 billion neurons with 100 trillion connections. So what we feel, we are in the field or some aspects of the field, probably since the days of von Economo or more recently like Mount Castle, is that there is this idea of a columnar canonical circuit. So it, you can think of it like that, right? You can have, it's like building blocks. And we think that there's this fundamental one or two building blocks that are along the range of columns that compose the neocortex. Now, they may not have physical boundaries necessarily, but they have some local rules of organization. And that's how we're trying to unpack. If we understand these rules of organization, then we're going to understand some level of organization that then will enable us to have a more of a big goal. And, you know, we're doing it both at the anatomical and the functional level. We're trying to find out what are the subtypes, how they're connected, how they compute information, and how this is related to tasks. You know, we're interested in sort of formally writing down well-defined tasks that we can mathematically define, that, they, that then, you know, a human, let's say, can learn or whatever. And then you're saying, okay, how do these neurons solve this problem? And then if we understand these principles, then these principles should be the same for many different tasks, right? Because if you have, if you, you know, every task that someone thinks is a new principle, then, you know, what kind of a brain is that? Not a good way to organize Yeah, it's things. not very attractive at least yeah. for me to understand it. But if there's like rules, some rules that they're very general and uh, for vision, you know, and then using those rules, we can learn how to recognize phases or we can learn how to recognize objects or you can learn how to like do something more abstract perceptually and I think that's what we are interested to understand. So do you mean that there's some sort of uh, uh, circuit diagram and maybe functionally it yeah. uh, manifests in different ways depending on the yeah. task? I, I think there is both an algorithm that is let's say canonical or sort of a not just one, but like let's say a few algorithms that the cortex implements. And then these algorithms, we can understand them algorithmically, like, you know, can write them down idealism equation. But then we have to be able to understand it, how mechanistically it's implemented. And this is where the circuit diagram comes. And this may be a functional circuit diagram in, in, the, in the sense that it's not just, let's say, having static connections, but it has some dynamic aspect to it. So it has to think of that, right? Like you can have, for example, two neurons connected with a synapse, but they may this may not be utilized under a particular condition and be utilized in another. So this is the idea. Could you give some examples of these rules of organization or these algorithms? Um, yeah, for example, there, there is... You know, there are ideas out there, theoretical ideas, like one is this idea of predictive coding that people talk about. For example, that 
the cortex is basically combining bottom-up information from top-down expectations. So, you know, let me give you an example. Let's say, you know, you expect to see a friend, right? So that generates some expectation in the activity profile in a particular area. And then you have a stimulus that, you know, it's a rainy day and it's occluded and you don't, you know, the, the bottom up, the information comes from the retina is very noisy and incomplete, which is an ambiguous. And now these things are combined in some kind of, in some way in the cortex, with each layer. And then, you know, if there's a good match, then you you perceive uh, something. Um, if if there isn't, you know, then maybe you send a new expectation. Maybe now it's like not that friend, it's another friend. And then when there is a match, so it's this idea of prediction and expectation combined. And, and there are, you know, people that have, I mean, we don't really understand this stuff. You know, we don't have any good, you know, understanding, but there are theoretical ideas out there of things that may or may not be true. We just need more experiments to really get to the bottom of this stuff. And, and uh, smart experiments that we can combine these modern methods in neuroscience with like multi-neuron recording and others with behavioral and computational paradigms. Could you describe what noise in the brain means and uh, what can we learn from studying noise in the brain? Yeah, so... Noise, traditionally people thought of noise as basically, let's say, imperfection in the way chemistry and biology are put together to give rise to neural circuits. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have synaptic transmission. People say, okay, maybe there's some stochasticity to it or phototransduction, you know, like the way photons are converted to electrical and chemical signals. You know, what we currently think is that a lot of this is not noise or a lot of the things that you measure as noise because you're not basically controlling them. What, what, you know, the, from the experimental point of view, what you think of noise is like anything that I do not control in terms of input or output, I'm going to call it noise. But we actually have a working hypothesis that, of course, is not proven, but it sort of motivates us to think of experiments that a lot of these may be internal signals to the brain. You know, so the brain is not just a structure that is like a passive input-output device. It's, you know, especially in higher animals like us, right? It's basically trying to internally, you know, do stuff, right? And of course, these computations are internal and you're not directly manipulating directly at that point in time or observing because you know, in an easy way, then you call them noise. So I think noise in the brain is interesting, noise in inverted commas, that may tell us something about internal computation. What do you think those internal computations reflect? For example, they reflect, you know, cognitive states, like, you know, a lot of psychologists talk about things like attention, or they may inflect, you know, reflect things like, you know, you're trying to assess different outcomes before you make a decision, right? Let's say you're trying to decide between, you know, there's five choices. Let's say you're trying to eat something and there's five plates and you're trying to decide, 
Maybe you're running some internal computation, you're thinking, how is this gonna taste? Am I gonna like it by the way it looks, right? And a lot of these things are happening consciously or subconsciously, right? And all this internal stuff that is happening is gonna modulate activity that is not gonna be reflected in a very easy way in an input-output relationship. That you may say, okay, this is noise, but it's actually not noise. Has there ever been a result in the lab that was really surprising and totally unexpected? I think all of the results. Yeah, every single one, and then it it yields, yeah. I think almost every single... General rule of science is... Yeah, yeah. I think every every single result, I mean, almost, or most of them seriously have been unexpected. Um, Partly because, you know, it's like... Sometimes, you know, you read the literature and you make up a hypothesis you want to test. And in trying to test the hypothesis, you come up with something, an observation that is very different or much more interesting, and you pursue that. And I think that's the nature of a lot of the science. Not all of it, but a lot of the science is like that. Or it gives you an idea to do a particular measurement that then may lead to a more interesting hypothesis, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, are there emerging technologies or developments in neuroscience that you will think a major impact on your research? I think if we had a way to record from all neurons in well-defined circuits, like a local circuit, like a column, with all the cell types, and we knew also their connectivity, you know, so basically cell, you know, record with cell type information and record from many of them. I think that will have a huge impact uh, for basic science and also for clinical applications. Um, how are you making strides into answering that those type of questions? Do you have techniques now that... Yeah, I mean, we basically have uh, actively pursuing imaging methods to record from more and more neurons, and imaging allows us to see what cell types we're recording from. That's one of the uh, ideas. Um, you know... And also, you know, we hope, you know, with new molecular tools that will be able to label more and more cell types that then we can visualize with imaging and then relate the cell types to different functions, different computations. Okay. Uh, What do you enjoy the most about being a scientist? The thing I enjoy the most, I think, is the potential to the potential in the sense of the hope that, you know, will have a big impact in society. At least for me, this is this hope that I enjoy the most, if that makes sense. Um, But also, you know, I enjoy a lot of the people that I interact with, especially the students, the postdocs, you know, in my lab. I enjoy that tremendously, like talking to them and brainstorming with them and having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you draw your inspiration from for your research? My inspiration, I I draw it from, you know, like, you know, like people that I have met in the past that have had, uh, they were very good scientists and they had a big impact in making big discoveries. Like I was fortunate, I was an undergraduate to have interacted a little bit with Hodgkin and Huxley, for example. So I, you know, I sort of, you know, draw the inspiration that these people, despite the difficulties, despite World War II, you know, they 
did an amazing contribution to the field, you know. The sort of standing on the shoulder of giants idea. Uh, yeah, I don't know if well placed. You know, but basically like people that, you know, they try to change the world, right? I mean, I think that's what at least I find. Mm-hmm. I, I get inspired. Of course, you know, it's almost very, very difficult to achieve that for any scientist. But I think striving towards it is more noble in some way than achieving it. You know, so I think that's important. Are you able to pursue interest hobbies outside of neuroscience? Yeah, do I, I do different hobbies, sports. Yeah. I like sports. Um, Playing. Watching. I play soccer. I like uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. You know, kickboxing. Mm-hmm. Um, I skiing. Yeah. I like skiing, although I don't get to do it a lot. Living no, in not Houston. in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, when I travel, I do. Um, you know, I, I think sports is uh, very important. Yeah. You know, the... It's like, I think, as important as doing science. In some so, ways. do you know how to do a Kimura? Yeah. yeah. I know how to do a Kimura. <laughs> how to choke someone. <laughs> I used to do... You uh, do jujitsu too? I used to do jujitsu. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which I would have known. I could have brought my gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll roll a little bit. Take it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm a little rusty, so you yeah. probably take me. <laughs> Um, so does the UT have a club here? They do. Uh, they have, uh, well, they have judo, um, mm-hmm. and for sure, and they have... Sure they do. Yeah. And 50,000 students. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not sure if they have a BJJ club uh, exclusively, but yeah. I did this before I moved uh, to grad school. I you know? see. I've been wanting to get back into it when I have more time. You know? Yeah, you should. It's just good for... Um, so good. Uh, exercise and uh, just general health. Yeah, it's not boring. It's yeah, not like running on a treadmill. My problem is I get bored when I exercise. Running on a treadmill or something. Yeah, you know? it's so boring. Yeah, you can do an hour of the most intense exercise and not even feel it. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, you yeah. feel like, oh my God, one hour goes by. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and finally, uh, do you have any other thoughts sort of that you'd like to share uh, with people listening? Yeah. Issues I close to your heart, you know? No, not, any, not anything particular, but I, you know, I would say like, you know, doing science is it's fun and uh, exciting because of this, you know, hope that you know one day you're gonna go into the lab or maybe take years, but then you come up with something very intriguing and novel, and then that's gonna be a basis to like help the world. I think that's one of the most noble things that someone can do. Great. All right. We'll end it there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.